Well, good morning. Welcome to Grace Bible Church. My name is Kyle Cox, and a little bit about me. I graduated from A&M in 2013, and uh, nice, yes. Um, I came on staff uh, with Grace as a fellow, if you're familiar with our fellows program. Was a fellow for three years and have this last year come on staff with, uh, with the outreach department, but I'm about to leave. Um, <laughs> so two exciting things in my life this year. The first is I got married in January, which is thank you, thank you. This is Chamilla Panilla, uh, now Chamilla Cox, unfortunately. Um, not unfortunate that she's married to me, but unfortunate that her last name changed from Panilla to Cox. Um, and so we are planning to go overseas next year, starting in, or this year, in September, to Greece through crew. So we're in transition right now for that, and we're really excited for that. Um, we're in Psalms chapter 51 this morning. So Psalm chapter 51. I remember when I was in high school, I was on the football team. I played football for four years, and I know what you're thinking. You look at me, and you think, that guy played football? And you're wrong to think that, or you're right to think that, sorry. You're correct in that thinking. I was at a 1A six-man team. Any six-man team in here? Said no one? All right, great. So me alone in this room was on a six-man team, and I could have been in crutches and have waddled onto the team. We were the worst team in the worst district, and in the worst team in the worst district, I was the worst player on the worst team in the worst district. And I remember my freshman year, my coach would always say, sacrifice yourself for the, or sacrifice your body for the team. And I always, always think, like, I don't really want to do that. And I remember he would tell us to uh, be tackling dummies for the seniors. And by the end of my freshman year, I thought, I'm not doing this ever again. Until my assistant coach came and convinced me otherwise. He sits me down and he says, Kyle, let's address the reality. Yes, you're small, weak, slow unathletic. And I was like, all right, you got to start getting to the point here. But he says, if you come to every practice, every game, you, when you are a senior, will be a captain and you will take this team to glory. And so what I did is for the next three years, I went to every game. I went to every practice. And when I was a senior, I was just as bad, if not worse than I was my freshman year. And my brother, my brother was a was a really great football player. And uh, he was taller than me and stronger than me and was just a, the women liked him more than me. Uh, the high school girls were just, they were very fond of him. In fact, they would come to me at times and they would be like, I really like your brother. And I'd be like, great. Um, so <laughs> if I could compare us to any celebrity brothers, I would say we were like the Hensworth brothers. So Tyler was like Chris Hensworth. He plays the, the Thor character in the Marvel movies. He's arguably the more popular of the two, the greater celebrity. People say he's the better looking of the two. Not to say Liam isn't. Um, and I know what you're thinking. Are you comparing yourself to Liam? No. I'm saying I'm like the third Hensworth brother that, uh, <laughs> that no one knew about until just now. So my brother was a really great football player. And I remember in one particular game, it was the only time I had ever made a touchdown, the ball slipped through someone's hand, which is a fumble for the layman. And uh, I had the opportunity to pick up the ball, but here was the problem. 
It was no doubt and no secret to my teammates that I was a terrible football player. And so it was only with the help of them that I could score the touchdown. And I know there's a team aspect and you can't do it without the team. No, no, no. It was like desperately cannot do it without the team. That was my position. And so as I picked up the football, I started running and it was awesome. My teammates just surrounded me and like, it was like slow motion. We would like nod to each other. Um, and it was just so clear that I needed help in this situation because there was nothing in myself that was going to make this touchdown without the help of others. And uh, I did make the touchdown. There was a flag on the play, unfortunately, but that's just, that's besides the point. I did make it. Uh, And so why do I say that? I say that because we're about to look at a confession of a man who was in desperate need of help. There was an objective and he needed help. David is who we're looking at this morning. And he wrote this Psalm 51 in confession after he had sinned. And David here, he recognizes in this psalm that there is nothing he can appeal to of himself, but it is only by God's grace that he can be forgiven. So David is in a desperate need of help. Psalm 51 is one of the most humbling, encouraging, and convicting chapters in all of Scripture. In fact, Charles Spurgeon, he says of this particular psalm, such a psalm may be wept over, absorbed into the soul, and exhaled again in devotion, but commented on, where is he who, having attempted it, can do other than blush at its defeat? And so in light of this psalm, I want us to walk through it with honest, reverent, transparent reflection. And so as we read this confession, I want us to think in our own lives, what is it That perhaps we're hiding in sin. What is the sin in our own life that we need to confess? And so that's my hope is that we look at this psalm honestly. And so before we jump into this confession, I think it's important for us to understand the context behind this confession, which is found in 2 Samuel chapters 11 through 12. We don't have time to read it, so I'm just going to summarize it real quick. But it starts off by saying, In the spring when all the kings were out to war, David sent his men to fight, and David stayed in Jerusalem. So in this wartime when kings were out to fight, David is isolating himself. And it says, It continues on saying he arose in the evening from his sleep. And so he literally had been doing nothing but sleeping from night to morning to afternoon and thought, well, I haven't seen the light of day today. I guess I'll go do that. And so he walks outside and then he sees a woman bathing. And in this moment, David has the opportunity to keep walking or stop and stare. And in that moment... David forgot about the God who saved him from Saul. David forgot about the God who saved him from Goliath. David's integrity was challenged and he plunged into sin. This was just one look. But after this one look, David started to get curious. So he starts asking questions. Who is this woman? And they answer to him, this is Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. And David, in this moment, you can imagine the conflict in his head. He's thinking, okay, it's a married woman. I'm a man of God. I know that's wrong. I shouldn't do anything. But David's king, and David gets what he wants. And so David sleeps with Bathsheba, and you can imagine the conflict in his mind continues, and he thinks, okay, it was just one time. I did it one time. I'm not going to do it again. But then he soon finds out that Bathsheba is pregnant with his child. 
And so David has to now manipulate the situation. So David, he takes Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, off the battlefield. He tells Uriah to stay the night with Bathsheba, but he didn't anticipate that Uriah was an honorable and respected man. And so Uriah, in good conscience, could not stay the night with his wife while his friends were on the battlefield. And so now David, he did not anticipate this, and now he must manipulate the situation even further. And so what he does is he second-handedly kills Uriah by placing him on the front lines of battle. And at this point, David thinks his secret is safe. He marries Bathsheba. People think it's his child, and he thinks he is safe. And the last verse in chapter 11 says, What David had done was evil in the Lord's eyes. In chapter 12, the prophet Nathan enters the story. And Nathan actually means in this chapter or in this book, a gift from God. And a gift Nathan was indeed to David. So Nathan, he tells David of the story of this rich man with many flocks of sheep and a poor man with one itty bitty lamb. And the poor man, he raises this itty bitty lamb and this itty bitty lamb is a part of this poor man's family. This poor man loves this lamb. And this story really resonates with David because David was a shepherd. So he kind of had a weird love for sheep. And he's like, all right, I'm engaged with the story. And so then Nathan says, but the rich man who had many flocks took the poor man's little lamb, even though the rich man had many. And David in his anger said, well, bring that man here. We're going to kill him. And Nathan, he responds with one of the biggest spiritual slaps in the face in all of scripture. And he says, David, you are that man. And in this moment, David's sin is found out. It is not hidden anymore. He weeps. And he owns up to God. He owns up his sin before God. And he writes this confession. Psalm 51. So, starting in verse 1. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you alone, I have sinned and have done what is evil in your sight. So that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear the joy of your, of your joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sin and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. We're going to stop right there. So at this point, David is broken and in need of restoration. And now in light of this psalm, there are four truths that I want to pull out of this text and identify and elaborate. And the first truth is this. All sin is destructive. So sin's literal translation in scripture means to miss the mark. And so therefore all sin misses the standard by which God would have us live. Now it's true that some sin on earth have different consequences than others. For example, murder will have a greater consequence here on earth than lying. But nevertheless, both miss the standard of God. And so if God's standard is here, and murder is here, and lying is here, both of these, everything below this standard, misses the standard. And so if I were to illustrate this another way, if you drive 60 miles over the speed limit, chances are you're probably going to hurt someone and yourself. But if you drive 5 miles over the speed limit, you may not hurt someone, but nevertheless, both are breaking the law. 
And so what that means for us is that because we have missed the standard, and though there are different earthly consequences, all sin leads to the same result, which is death, says Scripture. All sin leads to death. And so in verse 1, David, he says, blot out my transgressions. And so here, David, he'll repeat different terminology to describe his sin. Verse 2, wash me from iniquity. Verse 3, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Verse 4, against you and you alone I have sinned and have done what is evil. Verse 5, I have been brought forth from iniquity. So you see, sin, iniquity, transgressions, evil, all to illustrate the seriousness of what David had done. And transgression means to rebel against one's law. So all sin defies God. All sin defies God. He says, you and you alone I have sinned. Now, obviously, David had sinned against Bathsheba. Obviously, he had sinned against Uriah. But the greatest consequence of David's sin is that he had sinned against God. Our sin is offensive to God. But not only is sin offensive, it's comprehensive. He says, in sin, my mother conceived me. I've been a sinner since I was a baby. I've been a sinner since I was an embryo. I was born with a heart that is prone to defy God. And this played itself out this morning in my life. This morning, I was in Blake Jennings, the teaching pastor here. I was in his office studying, and it was his birthday a couple days ago. And I saw a Freebirds gift card on his desk, and my first thought was, I should take that. I really wanted it. What's crazy is I actually did take it. And then I put it back and was like, did I really just study this portion of a sermon and take his Freebirds gift card? Uh, I wanted Freebirds, but it's because I'm born with a heart that is prone to defy God. I just, I'm born with a heart that says, yeah, I kind of want that, so I'm going to take it. But I have to remind myself that it's sin. Sin is offensive, it is comprehensive, and it is pervasive. In verse 3, he says, my sin is always before me. Even in my best deeds, on my best days, when I am doing what would seem to be noble, I am prone to do these things for selfish reasons. My Christ-like actions can harbor some of the most prideful thoughts. I'm a sinner through and through. And what's crazy is sin, it can start so subtly. It started with just a walk for David, just a glance across the roof. And just one lustful look for David led to adultery, which led to murder. And if you read the text further, it led to the death of a child. Sin, it takes arms so slowly, so carefully, and so subtly. But it devastates so painfully. And if we think what we would deem as small sin do not result in pain, we're deceiving ourselves. We can conceal sin. We can hide it away from people, but it will always end in pain. Sin is ultimately destructive because what it does, it it defies the one we were made to love. And so what sin does, even if no one finds out about our sin, what it will do is it will hurt that connection we have with the Father who he is the only one who is able to give us satisfaction and joy. And so that's going to make us lose that satisfaction we have. It's going to make us lose that joy. It's going to negatively affect our lives. Even if we deceive ourselves and think this isn't affecting anyone, it does. It affects us painfully 
Because it defies the one who can bring us joy and satisfaction. And inevitably, as our connection with our Father is hurt, it will surely start to hurt the connection we have with one another. It will start to hurt our relationships with one another. You see, what we perceive to be small is infinitely serious to God and it's destructive. C.S. Lewis illustrates this well in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, when a man is getting better, he understands more and more clearly the evil that is still left in him. When a man is getting worse, he understands his own sin less and less. A moderately bad man knows he is not very good. A thoroughly bad man thinks he is all right. This is common sense, really. You understand sleep when you are awake, not while you are sleeping. You can see mistakes in arithmetic when your mind is working properly. You can understand the nature of drunkenness when you are sober, not when you are drunk. Good people know about both good and evil. Bad people do not know about either. We understand our sin and recognize it for what it is when we understand that it is defiance against God. And as we start to see sin as insignificant or justify it as insignificant, we lose the sobriety to see sin as black and white, and we suddenly start to see it as gray. And suddenly we start to take sin lightly, and we suddenly start to become numb to sin. What we forget, too, is that future devastation can be caused by just one look, by just one thought, by just one action. And I think about Genesis 3. What did Adam and Eve do? Well, they just ate a fruit. But because they ate that fruit, because that was sin to God, that resulted in the condemnation of mankind. So now murder, war, trafficking, all because of one sin that perhaps we would deem insignificant. Moses struck a rock and couldn't enter the promised land. Cain was jealous of evil, or Cain was jealous of Abel, and it resulted in death. Ananias and Sapphira told a lie, and they were killed for it. So you see, sin is so destructive. It is so painful. And so I think we need to feel the weight of this truth so we can understand the incredible wonder and incredible relief of truth number two, that despite our defiance against God, God is gracious. God is gracious. David uses different terminology to describe God's grace. He says, have mercy on me, O Lord. Your steadfast love abounds. Your abundant mercy abounds. Wash me thoroughly from iniquity. Cleanse me. He is basically asking God to unsin him, which I know technically isn't a word, but I love the thought of that, that he is asking God to unsin him. Now think about this request that David is asking. David had just committed two sins by which the law of Moses would require death. And yet what he's asking God to do, he is asking God to whom he has defied to act as though he had never defied him. He's asking God for his grace. You see, David has nothing in himself to appeal to. David has no basis in himself for this request. David can't appeal to anything within himself. So what is David appealing to? He's appealing to God's grace. The language that David uses throughout this psalm is cleansing and it's purifying. You see, grace always comes at a significant cost. Cleansing is costly and it always involves sacrifice. So this is why in verse 7, David says, Purify me with hyssop. 
And hyssop in the Old Testament law, had you sinned or if you were unclean, you would go to the priest to become clean. And hyssop was a small plant that was used, that the priest would use to spread blood over a sacrifice or an offering in sacrificial ceremonies. In fact, in Exodus chapter 12, hyssop was used to spread the blood on the doorpost so that the angel of death would just pass through. You see, hyssop was a very important tool in cleansing. And so when David is referring to hyssop, he is saying, I need myself completely cleansed. And what will cleanse me is nothing within myself, but it is only at a cost of a sacrifice. You see, what David did, the penalty was death. And so if David expects that penalty of sin to be removed, then that penalty must be paid by something or someone other than David. Now, here is the implication that this has for us today. God's grace was shown in the life of Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life as fully God and fully man. And Jesus looked to us, past, present, and future, and looked at us with great compassion. He looked at us in the penalty of our death, and he said, I will take the penalty for you and for me. And so what Jesus did is he willingly sacrificed himself on the cross, being murdered on the cross in the shedding of our blood as the ultimate sacrifice, effectively fulfilling the wrath of God. Jesus took our place of death. And then three days later, he did not stay in the grave, but he rose from the grave, effectively conquering sin once and for all. So as Hebrews 10, 11 through 12 says, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But he offered one sacrifice for sins for all time and sat down at the right hand of God. This is the good news for us that our penalty was paid by Jesus on the cross and the shedding of his blood as the perfect sacrifice to take our place. Praise God for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. What a Savior as we sing whose blood has pardoned us. His blood has pardoned us. This is the grace of God. This is the love of Jesus Christ. That he would love us, love us enough to say, I will make a way for you by taking your penalty of sin. And so my hope this morning is this, that if you do not know Jesus as your Savior, that you would come to know him today. What an incredible testimony we saw this morning as these two reflected their salvation and trust in Jesus through baptism. What an incredible testimony that is. And so this is exclusively through Jesus. There is nothing in ourselves that we can appeal to for God's grace. It is only through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so if you haven't trusted in Jesus this morning, my hope is that you would do so today. And for those of us who have trusted in Jesus, my hope is that this will be a reminder of his great sacrifice to take the place of our sin. Truth number three, confession is key. So David here, he is being completely transparent before God. He isn't trying to cover himself up. He isn't trying to make excuses or justifications or blaming others or other circumstances. He is being blatantly, bluntly, transparently honest before God. He isn't trying to minimize his sin, which I think at times I do and I think we do in minimizing and reducing our sin. 
But David doesn't do that. He knows the problem is within his own heart. And so verse 16 and 17, he says, you would not delight in sacrifices. Now, David is not demeaning the sacrificial system like it doesn't matter. What he's doing is he, he knows that sacrifice is an outward ritual that reflects an inward reality. And so in light of David's sin, he knows something has to happen deep within his heart. He doesn't want to bypass the brokenness of his heart through just religious ceremony. And so my hope this morning is that as we reflect on this Psalm 51, on this confession, is that we would not just come and listen to some songs, listen to a sermon and leave, but that we would not bypass the brokenness of our heart and that we would have honest confession before the Lord this morning. Confession is wrapped in humility. It's wrapped in humility to say, I need you to take this away. And there is nothing I can do. Only you, God. This is me transparently before you. The more I try to fix myself, the more I realize how hopeless and helpless I am. But it's by God's grace, not my ability, that I can be cleansed. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to cleanse us. This is the greatest news. That he is just and faithful to cleanse us. That now, no matter what we have done in our past, no matter what we do in our future, that if we come before God and confess our sins, he is quick and faithful to forgive. No matter what we've done. And when we come to know Jesus as our Savior, there is nothing that can take away that gift of salvation. We are always made right in front of the Father because of Jesus Because of Jesus, we are made righteous, we are made cleansed in in God's eyes. And so there is nothing we can do in life that can take away that gift of salvation. And so why wouldn't we confess our sins in light of that, knowing full well in all confidence that he will forgive us? What's more is confession is freeing. There is a weight lifted in confession. Open confession is good for the soul. I think there are little things that bring as much ease in life to a man or a woman than frank acknowledgement of his or her sin that has caused so much sorrow. Such a declaration shows that we acknowledge our own condition and the need for God's gracious and gentle and kind response. And I think to myself, what if we as the church had transparent confession— What if we as the church humbly before the Lord said, God, this is me raw and transparently before you. Fix me. Forgive me. Think about the cleansing that would go on in the body of Christ. Think about the conflicts that would resolve, the frustrations that would cease. Think about the relationships that would heal if we just said, God, change me from the inner core. Change me. There's such great humility that comes with confession. And there is such a response of grace and kindness that comes from our God. Where there is confession, there is freedom. There is relief. And the last truth, there is restoration. Truth number four, restoration is the result. In verse 10, he says, create in me a new heart. So David doesn't just want a band-aid over the wound. What he wants is to be completely cleansed, completely restored. He doesn't want to just try harder next time. He wants a heart that doesn't even desire sin. 
And so God, he not only makes us clean and right, what he does beyond that is he recreates our heart. And in fact, this word create in verse 10 in the Hebrew is the same word for create in Genesis chapter 1. For when God creates the world and the universe out of nothing. And so here, David is saying, you have to completely create in me a clean and new heart. So God, what he does is he restores us and he makes us a new creation in Jesus Christ. And as the text move on, moves on, David says, restore to me the joy of our salvation. So not only does he recreate us, but he reestablishes that joy that was broken for when we sinned. He reestablishes our joy. He reestablishes our satisfaction in him. We were made to find joy in our Father. And sin, when it, what it does is it, it breaks the connection of that joy. But through Jesus and his great compassion for us, God is so gracious and quick to reestablish that joy. Ephesians chapter 1 Verse 7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the richness of his grace. Concealment is the pathway to misery, but confession is the pathway to joy. We have restoration in the Father. He restores us. Now here's the hope that we have for the future. That one day, Jesus will return And he will create a new heaven and a new earth. And his kingdom will be established here on earth. And until that day, our obligation is to reflect and represent the kingdom. Because in God's kingdom, there is no sin. There is no consequence of sin. There is no temptation of sin. We will be in glory with the Father and with our Savior, Jesus. And so our obligation now as the church is to represent that future kingdom by representing the king. Let's look at verse 12. He says, restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with the willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. So not only does he restore us, Not only does he reestablish our joy, but even beyond that, he seeks to use us. And so just as he used David, despite David's sin, he looks at us and he wants to use us despite our sin. He wants to use us to make him known. That's why David says, I will teach transgressors your ways. It makes sense that if the Lord has restored us, if he has redeemed us, if he has brought us from death to life, that we would proclaim his name to our neighbors, to our coworkers, students, to our classmates. It makes sense that we would love the people of this earth, that we would represent and reflect Jesus to them. And even beyond that, he then says, my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. So it makes sense in response to his restoration that we would praise him. So we reflect the king. And yes, we still sin. Sin will still be part of our lives until we are with him in glory. But the hope is that through the process of sanctification, he will make us more and more like him until that day we are in glory with him. And so in our restoration, we are used by the Father We are used by the Father. So as we've read through Psalm 51, 
What I want to do now is point out three applications in light of this psalm. And these applications will hopefully aid us in our fight against sin. And they will aid us in the sanctification process to become more and more like Jesus. And the first is this. Seek sacrifice. Matthew chapter 529 says, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the members than your whole body be thrown into hell. Now, the implication here is not to literally cut out your eye, but the implication is what are you willing to sacrifice in order to guard yourself from sin that appears subtle? It's what are we willing to sacrifice in our lives? And what this looks like in my life is when I was in high school, uh, I was introduced to pornography. And that struggle and addiction to pornography followed me throughout college. And finally, as my conviction started to grow more and more against this sin. Um, one night, at the middle of the night, I was struggling and wanting to look at pornography. And I thought, I'm just going to go outside. I'm just going to go for a walk. And so as I was going for a walk, I looked at a pond and I thought, don't think, just do. And I threw my phone into the pond. Now, in retrospect, that was littering. So don't do that. No littering. Um, But my point is this, that I needed a season of life away from a smartphone. And I'm not hating on smartphones. I have one now. Um, But what in your life do you need to give up perhaps for just a season? Or even beyond that, what in your life do you need to give up altogether? Where, yeah, it's inconvenient. It inconveniences you. But in the end, what it does is guard you from sin. What drastic measures are you taking in your life to guard you from sin? Point number two, seek accountability. Proverbs 27, 6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Now I think about when Nathan rebuked David. I think it's no question that Nathan's words wounded David. I think they did. I think they wounded David. However, this ultimately moves David towards repentance and confession. And so what this looks like in my own life is that every Thursday morning I meet with two guys who are on staff, uh, uh, on staff at Grace as well, and we confess our sin very transparently to one another. We confess our sin. We celebrate with one another. We rebuke one another. We encourage one another. And I will say, these two guys have both hurt me and wounded me with some of the things that they have said, but they have said that with a love and hope that I would pursue confession and repentance. What's more is these men have helped me in my struggle against sin. And when the fight is hard, these two lighten the load. And so that begs the question, who in your life do you know that it is okay for you to not be okay? Who in your life knows you? For you to say, not only am I jealous of this person, but I actually wish this person would fail and I would be elevated above them. Not only do I struggle with pornography, but I don't even feel bad for it. Not only do I struggle with pride, but I just don't care for anyone else to just be bluntly, transparently honest with people that you know it is okay for you to not be okay. What's more is Ephesians 6.12 tells us that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of wickedness. So doesn't it make sense that we would want a community of believers surrounding us in light of and against that struggle? It makes sense that five is greater than one. We need a community of believers surrounding us. We need accountability. Point number three, seek scripture. 
Psalm 119.11 says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So when the prospect of sin or temptation presents itself, the outcome is usually dependent upon the amount of time we have spent in Scripture with our Lord. Think about this. The ultimate fight we have against our sin, the ultimate chance we have against our sin, is to become more and more like the one who defeated sin. And how do we become more like Jesus? It's by studying and reflecting and learning more about him through his word. When we read scripture, the author, he speaks. And so we want to know more about Jesus. We want our relationship with Jesus to be kindled. We want to become more like Jesus. The method of doing that is through scripture. And so we must seek scripture. And I find myself when the fight is rough, when I fall into sin, that it's the moments that I have forsaken scripture, prayer, accountability, sacrifice, that I seem to fall into sin the most. And so in light of this psalm, this is where I want to end. And I won't spend a lot of time on it. I hope you come back in a couple weeks because Brad Evans is really going to be honing in on guilt and shame. Um, But really quickly glossing over this, if you're anything like me, you can feel such regret or shame or guilt from your past sin or your current sin. And what I have to remember and remind myself is when I feel that guilt and shame is that the real resolution of my guilt is the recognition of his grace. That I don't need guilt or shame. I don't need to feel guilt or shame because I have become made white as snow through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is true that there still are consequences from sin that are very real, but we don't need to feel shame and guilt for our sin because we have been made righteous through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And through Jesus, God sees us as clean. He sees us as righteous. And there is nothing we can do to outsin God. God's grace is so much greater. It is so much bigger than our sin. And so my hope this morning in reflection of the psalm is that we would come before God in honest confession of our sin. And as we worship one more time this morning, my hope is that we could praise him, knowing that he has saved us, knowing that Jesus loves us and he has made a way for us in his great compassion. In light of this psalm, there is one to whom we can go and a solution to be found. Our need is so crucial The solution is so radical, but praise God that his response is so gentle and so kind. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you for being a God who is quick to forgive. We praise you for being a God who has made a way for his grace to be shown through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And as we come to know him, that we are saved once and for all. And so, Lord, our prayer is that we would deal with our sin this morning honestly. God, that we would honestly come before you this morning confessing our sin. And in response to your restoration in our lives, Lord, that we would would tell the world, God, that we would outreach to the world, that we would make your name known to the world because you have given us such an incredible gift. How could we not want to share that gift? Lord, we recognize this world needs you. We recognize this world is dark and it needs you, Lord. So Lord, would we as your church be the hands and feet? 
We love you, Lord, and we praise you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.